My guests to start our program today, we'll have two different topics, and we're going to talk about the personality of corporations and their pathological nature. How do we get to where we're having so much problems? Is Professor Joel Bakken, B-A-K-A-N. He is a lawyer, professor of constitutional and economic law, and an internationally recognized legal scholar at the University of British Columbia. He's also a Rhodes Scholar and has law degrees from Oxford University and Harvard University. He is the author of the book, The Corporation, as well as, you know, the, uh, the uh, very good documentary from the same name. Nice to have you with us. Um, it's, I'm nice, it's nice to be on, Gary. Thanks for having me. I'm going to go through a couple of areas that I have concern with, and I'd like for you to give us your input. There's no commercials, so you can take your time. We're under no uh, time restraints, so you can lay out your your answers completely, all right? Thank you. During the past uh, 11 months, we have seen oil go from $44 a barrel to $1.48 a barrel, $148 a barrel. I calculated based upon how many um, barrels of oil are sold in the world each day and how much the difference was between the original cost and the inflated cost that over $700 billion in profit was made. We were led to believe during this period of time by members of Congress that have oversight of this and by various corporations that this is just about the marketplace in supply and demand. I then took a careful look at China, India, Brazil, uh, the European Union, and America, and Canada's oil requirements and found that, to the contrary, the requirements were lessening, not increasing. So it was n- they were not being honest. They were being disingenuous. It was not about supply and demand. And then when I looked further, I saw, started seeing through the mercantile exchanges that this was all about a relatively small number of individuals and corporations that were exploiting the commodities to gouge it. And then I thought on this level, and this is where we're going to combine the pragmatic with the, the notion of ethical. What they did was completely legal, but in my opinion, it was not ethical. And I wondered what it would be like to be one of the hedge fund billionaires who were involved, one of the equity buyout kings who was involved, their supporters on Wall Street who've accepted enormous amounts of money to deregulate the industry so it could do this with impunity, and then compare them with someone who has to decide, can they heat the whole house or must they use heat sparingly? Can they heat the house and buy diabetic medication or chemotherapy or whatever they're buying in the way of medication and eat, or must they make choices about they have to eat less, as many Americans are doing, and actually going below the poverty level and are actually going to bed hungry each day. 36 million is the latest count, including 12 million children, uh, because they can't eat their full requirements of food and heat their house, and drive a car, and take their medicines. It's about priorities. And I was thinking, what kind of world have we become when we exploit our own, when we don't create new corporations that actually cause sustainable 
quality jobs within a community, to allow the community to be built around it, as we did in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, even in the, up to the mid-70s. And what does it mean when that's the first part of the question? Again, it's a very, it's more of a essay I'm giving you that to, to address. The second part is what does it mean when we, the the citizen, will invest in a company that makes enormous profits, where the profit making of the company is the reason we are in, enticed to it and will support it without asking. Did this company exploit currencies and, and cause currency fluctuations, which cause people in the currency fluctuation area to, to lose a lot, to lose the value? As it happened when George Soros speculated on and on the uh, uh, the ruble in Russia and on the peso in Mexico to devastating effects for hundreds of millions of people. And yet he's heralded by the people on the left as a, you know, a great guy. Not in my book. Yeah. And then why can't we get up one day and say, I can't make money from a company, even though it's a, making good profits, if it's doing business in Darfur, as many companies were in the Sudan, not Darfur specifically, but in the Sudan, which is a part of, uh, Darfur is a part of, or I can't do business in, in China if I'm at the same time having to look away at what they're doing with human rights violations. So it's about the ethics of the corporation and the people who run them, the ethics of people who invest purely to profit without any thought. Is there a moral equation that must be used at this time? The forum is yours. Well, there's a there's a lot in uh, in the essay that you've just that you've just given, and let me uh, let me just think of a, a way of commenting on it. And and uh, in in my book in the film, I, I I always find putting things in their historical context uh, is helpful. And because when we look at history, I mean, we look at societies, we look at the Roman Empire, we look at medieval Europe, the Dark Ages, the so-called Dark Ages. Um, we look at these periods in time and we say, how could people have let things come to that, Nazi Germany? How could they have allowed that to happen? What were they doing that enabled them to acquiesce to a system of governance and of economic production that was so out of sync with what we consider to be just a basic sense of common humanity, with what in fact makes us human. And so if we project 500 years into the future and look back on our own society, I think what, what we'll see and what helps explain some of what you're talking about is a society that around the mid-19th century um, began to separate ideas about morality and principle and values from economic production. Uh, this is, of course, the rise of capitalism as we know it, of corporate capitalism. And around that time, created or reinvented an institution known as the corporation um, and imbued it with a particular legal mandate which said the idea of this institution is to pursue wealth at whatever cost to anybody else that the, the legal function of this institution is to create a return for investors, period. Uh, even if that means uh, fouling the environment, exploiting workers, uh, promoting inequality, um, uh, or in the end self-destructing, as we've recently seen on Wall Street. And what that person 500 years will continue to see is not only did the society create that institution, 
but it basically said uh, what we're going to do is allow that institution to do whatever it wants. We're not going to regulate it back in the mid-19th century and into the 1910s and 1920s. Then that person will see that, that, that things weren't going very well, and particularly in 1929, the system crashed, and government started to say, wait a minute, we need to impose constraints on that institution. We need to regulate it. We need to ensure that certain values and certain interests aren't destroyed um, through that institution's pursuit of profit. But then what uh, that person, that historian, will see is that eventually those regulations were rolled back under pressure from the institution and from industry itself through lobbying, through campaign financing, uh, through electing administrations like the Bush administration and whatnot. Um, eventually, we got to a point where the institution was at the end of the 20th century, much as it had been at the end of the 19th, and that was uh, unconstrained. And so society began to be created in that institution's image. And the values that society adhered to and embraced were the values of that institution. And so we had a society with an ideology and a practice that basically said all that matters is that wealth be created, that profit be created by these institutions. Uh, and any attempts to try to protect other values um, are illegitimate in effect. And that's kind of where we were two or three months ago. Um, whether that thinking will change as a result of the Wall Street meltdown, I don't know. But so that's kind of the, I guess, the short answer um, to your essay. We've ended up in a place where we have very few mechanisms for protecting, advancing, promoting the range of values that make us human, that enable us to have functioning societies, functioning communities, all of those things have become, in effect, secondary. The person who can't heat their home or get their diabetes medication, well, that's just too bad. They, uh, you know, they should do better in their life. They, uh, they, they obviously weren't successful. That's not our concern. That's that person's concern. The person making billions off of hedge funds, good for that person. You know, they've managed to find a way to make money, and we're going to value them and, and say that, that, they're, that they're a hero. And I, that, that, that tends to be that, that's, that's sort of what happened, that kind of individualism, that kind of inability to, to really um, take hold of all of these other values of community, of spirituality, of love, of compassion, of caring, all of these other things have fallen by the wayside, at least in terms of this dominant ethos. In terms of people themselves, I have a lot of faith that most people still hold to those values. But there's a disconnect between their sense of what it means to be human and what a good society is and their ability to be effective in creating that uh, in their communities and, and in their societies. I appreciate that answer. Thank you. Let's go now to the idea that corporations in the United States have become depersonalized as far as taking responsibility. We don't look at a corporation and say, you made a product that hurt a lot of people, and therefore shouldn't someone be held accountable? And when you, what I did was this, I, 
I have some scholars and residents on my staff. We do a lot of research every single day. And I asked one of them, find me how many just Wall Street firms, only Wall Street firms, engaged in illegalities were so found illegal and paid penalties or fines. Then show me Fortune 500 companies that also engaged in illegal activity were found guilty and paid fines or penalties. And I was just blown away. They brought in a box that was uh, a, a large moving box. It had so many documents in it, it took me a week to go through them. I'm talking about some companies had hundreds of violations mm -hmm. and paid millions of dollars. Citicorp alone paid over $1 billion in fines and uh, out based upon its illegalities. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, if you, uh, Joel uh, Backen, if you break the law forever any time your name is mentioned, just like Martha Stewart, all the ex-con, and uh, but when corporations break the law repeatedly, nothing sticks. They're Teflon, like Ronald Reagan. Nothing yep. ever sticks. Why is this that we yeah, don't I, hold these people accountable? In my book, I have a uh, three-page rap sheet for General Electric, and I, I wasn't picking on General Electric. I just sort of, uh, you know, used that example. I could have used uh, many, many others. And in the film, we have a nice montage of these sorts of things that you're talking about, um, all of the penalties that these companies, uh, major Fortune 500 blue-chip companies, regularly attract. Um, now, the, the problem is that in the corporation, we've basically created, and I'm, I'm not trying to be rhetorical here, but we've created an irresponsibility machine. And what I mean by that is we've uh, legally required corporations to justify all of their actions on the basis of what will generate profit for their investors. So their legal mandate is a responsibility only to one stakeholder in terms of the potential effects that they may have by their actions. So they are legally required to be blind to the effects that they may have uh, on the worker on the shop floor who gets injured or on the farmer who's downstream and uh, who, uh, whose land gets polluted and whose river gets polluted or on anybody else. Their only concern is that run one group of uh, people, their shareholders, and their only concern for their shareholders is financial concern. They're not concerned about the air their shareholders breathe or whether their shareholders' children uh, are becoming ill from toxicity in the water. They're only concerned that they make a return on that investment. And that's what we created in the corporation. So to that extent, um, the corporation has been legally required or compelled to be irresponsible to all of the interests that lie outside that one group of shareholders. And when it comes, so, so the, the corporation will engage in, uh, legally will engage in activity that is highly destructive um, to others, uh, not, just, uh, not just legally in the sense that it's okay for them to do that, but in the sense they're actually required to do that. That's part of their mandate. 
when you take it a step further and say, well, why do we allow them to engage in illegal action? Why do we allow them to attract all of these large fines and whatnot? And the answer is quite simple. The corporation, unlike you and me, uh, is not a living and breathing human being. You can't put the corporation in jail. The only thing you can really do to the corporation as an entity, and it's treated by the law as a legal person, the only thing you can do to it is fine it. You can impose a fine of a million dollars or 500000 or whatever. And the problem is, is that it's usually, given the nature of the fines, which tend to be relatively low, it's usually more profitable for the company to actually break the law and pay the fine and uh, run the chance of not even getting caught uh, than it is to comply with the law. Uh, a really nice example of this is, uh, has to do with the automobile industry. The automobile industry has been pushing, uh, lobbying like crazy for years to try to reduce the uh, uh, minimum tailpipe emission standards. And they've succeeded in getting them quite low. But that wasn't good enough for them. They figured out a scheme to be able to avoid those standards um, because those standards didn't apply to trucks. So they began a major marketing campaign over the last uh, 15 years or so of trying to sell people trucks and trying to recategorize vehicles as trucks. So that's what we have, you know, Hummers, and we have SUVs, and we have CRVs, and we have minivans, uh, and we have those PT cruisers that are classified as trucks because you can remove the back seat. So they've done everything they can to reduce the relative number of cars being bought and increase the number of trucks being bought because the trucks are exempt due to their lobbying from the tailpipe emission standards. Um, so, so there's an instance where they're not technically breaking the law, but they're manipulating the law. Uh, in many instances, they actually break it. And as I say, whether to, they break the law or not tends to be a matter of a cost-benefit calculation. Can we make more money by ignoring this environmental standard or their, this worker safety standard and run the risk of getting caught? And if we get caught paying the fine, can we make more money by ignoring it than by complying with it? And they crunch the numbers. And there are some very, um, uh, some very disturbing instances of that. One that I talk about in the book, it's not in the film, uh, is the, uh, the case of uh, a GM car. The, uh, the Maverick, I believe. And the engineers, uh, and this is all on, this is all, you can research this all on the web. There was a fellow named uh, Ivy, I-V-E-Y, Edward Ivy, who worked in the design department at GM in the early 1970s and was asked to actually calculate whether it would be cheaper to continue to produce a car without certain safety standards that would prevent it from blowing up on rear-end impact or to simply keep um, or, or to include those safety standards and, and uh, therefore avoid legal liabilities. And basically, he did a calculation where he said, we can assume that each fatality will cost $200,000 in legal costs as a result of being sued. And we can assume there'll be 500 fatalities as a result of these exploding cars every year. And if we divide that by the total number of GM automobiles on the road, it ends up costing $2.40 uh, 
to have these cars blowing up, in other words, to not include the uh, redesign that would prevent them from blowing up, it ends up costing $2.40 for each of our automobiles to allow the cars to blow up and not put in the safety feature. Whereas we put it, if we put in the safety feature, it would cost $6.19 a car. So we actually are going to save money by not complying with the law to put in the safety feature and to continue to put cars on the road that are going to blow up and kill people. And uh, that was the decision that they went with. Sounds like the Pinto. It's very similar to the Pinto. Yeah. yeah it's a very similar story, except this was GM. Uh, and it was the Maverick. All right. Let's use a—I appreciate that example. Let's sorry, use something. Let's use something that's more germane to us right now today. Uh, by the way, uh, John Kudley, uh, uh, I think it's Kudley uh, from the New York Post, wrote, Surprise, speculators are blamed for oil's rise. And he, he actually shows that it was right there and why no one was able in the media to show, okay, here are the people who made $700 billion this year on speculating on oil. Right. Here's how they did it. And so we can see who these people are. Instead, what we do is we'll go to the corporate raider Silverstone's 60th birthday party where he hires Rod Stewart to perform and spend $7 million on a birthday party. And we think that's just great. And before the titans of Enron, Ken Lay, and the others, John Skilling, were uh, arrested, they had earned over $100 million in net worth had a lot of social respect, were on everyone's local charity board, and everybody just wanted to know about what's the latest, what are you spending on? And in New York City, on Channel 13 Public Television, the largest PBS station in the country, the man who was the head of the local station board was Henry Kravitz. And I know you know who Henry Kravitz is, the, the corporate buyout king. And... And I'm surprised that we have allowed the wealthiest people, the most uh, aggressive, predatory people who have no qualms about how they make their money, to sit in some of the most revered positions of respect in our society without questioning, how did you make your money? It's as if, as long as they're willing to write checks or get others to write checks, we don't care how they make their money. We're not going to look at that. Just uh, let us know how much you need, and we'll see that it checks on its way. And I see this at the, a friend of mine I went to high school with is one of the top people at the Metro, uh, the Museum of Modern Art. And we had a conversation once, and she says, look, if you, you give enough money, you know, you can get a wing named after you. You can get anything in, in this whole museum game. It's about getting the richest people to get on your board, and then they feel some, you know, great ego stroke that they're on the board and they're collecting paintings or donating paintings and giving money. She said, in the end, it has nothing to do with anything more than the power of writing a check. So I'm thinking, look at all the people who have done bad things in their corporate positions, whether hedge funds, major Fortune 500, General Electric, as you said, or General Motors, who are able to write the big checks and get get invited everywhere. And they're invited without ever questioning, did you make your money off cigarettes? Well, Henry Kravitz owns R.J. Nabisco. And we know that worldwide, 20 million people worldwide die of cigarette smoking each year. And I'm thinking, 
gee, would you invite someone that caused the unnecessary preventable death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, to advise you? Where have we gone so wrong? Well, I'd like you to address that, please. Yeah, I mean, w- again, it, it's important to, to look at this historically, I think. Um, where the beginnings of going wrong were, I think, it probably was in the middle of the 19th century when we began to separate out the idea of economic production from moral values. Um, now, I'm not saying that life was great during, you know, the medieval period in Europe and, and, and Middle Europe and, and whatnot, but what was different about that time between then and now, and, and uh, you know, the Merchant of Venice is a, is, a, is a great portrayal of how things were changing even then, um, was that there was a sense in which economic functioning and production was, in fact, not separable from moral values and principles. What we did in the mid-19th century was to separate out the economy from morality. And what you're talking about now very much reflects that, that we somehow um, are unwilling to pierce the veil of the the sort of moral veil uh, when we're talking about money that somehow money is its own dynamic, that exists in its own system, that we go to church and we talk about what's right and wrong, and we talk about uh, good and evil, and, and, and we go to synagogue, and we go to the mosque, and we have all of these moral systems, whether, whether religious or, or secular, and philosophers debate about what's right and moral philosophers and whatnot. It's so, so it's not that we don't deal with moral issues. But somehow we say that the economy is different, that it's immune to those kinds of moral judgments and concerns and issues. That's a buck. A buck is a buck, regardless of where it comes from. Uh, so there's this kind of equivalence, this moral equivalence that we impose upon or imbue the economy with in terms of where money comes from. We don't question it. Why that's so, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a, a very complicated issue historically and socially as to how we've come to the point where we've bought into that idea. But that, to me, is, is the core idea here that is causing our society to be moving in the wrong direction. If, if I had the power to influence the president... I would give him five points. I would like for you to give us as many points as you would choose. Here are the five I would suggest. By executive decree, executive order, state that there are no more foreclosures, so no American has to leave their home. And also, just from a very practical point of view, it's much better to have a person in a home living than out on the street uh, because, first, the suffering to that person. Secondly, if the person's in the home, at least they're able to support, at some level, the society they live in. Secondly, forgive all late fees on interest of credit cards and cap the amount the credit card companies can make at 100% above what the money costs them. That would be about 4%. Third, to ban all trading in commodities that are essential to life. 
No more speculating in commodities like water, oil, gas, food. And last, or fourth, to allow people a chance to, um, like the old uh, 40 acres and a mule, to start to reestablish the value of living closer to the land by those who wish to, by giving incentives for people to live on the land, providing that they are able to work the land, and in a meaningful way, to in effect, to, to lower the carbon footprint, to have um, gardening, organic gardening around the United States, and uh, to bring that those produce items into the uh, cities where they're and towns where they're at. And finally, uh, and in my opinion, very importantly, to go into inner cities. In every community in the United States, there are areas of the community that are downtrodden. There's generally high crime, lots of drug use, uh, and it's not safe, either for the people who are have no choice but to live there or anyone going there. And start a whole two-for-one tax write-off. You contribute one dollar, you get two dollars deduction, and get corporate America to start sponsoring revitalization of inner city and have the people in the inner city be the first to be hired. And also, you have abandoned buildings and take all abandoned buildings. And in New York, there's over 65,000 alone and uh, and rehabilitate them into affordable housing for people not to buy them but rather they rent them and only at 15% of their disposable income. So even the poor person, even the person on a very fixed income, would still have a quality of life in a home that they could afford since it's based on a percentage of their income. You're putting people to work in the community. You're developing a community with gardens and, and schools and charter schools and and uh, and assisted living facilities and, and counseling centers, the things that cities and inner cities need desperately. And they're not getting. And now you've you've made oases where there were ghettos. And uh, you brought stability, economic stability, emotional stability. And it doesn't cost the taxpayers. It's helped major corporations, minor corporations, any corporation can donate to a fund. And you've put about, I guesstimate, around 7 million Americans to work. And then you've given uh, more than that number a place to live. Those are some things that I believe we should be doing in order to reestablish real jobs, not transient, real change, not superficial, in America. I'd like for you to take your time and share your thoughts with us. Well, I would sign, I would sign at the bottom of, of that statement. Um, in terms of uh, general ideas, I really think that uh, there needs to be a reimagining of what an economy is supposed to be, and a reimagining in a collective sense. Um, I mean, somebody like Barack Obama has the the platform and has the charisma, I think, to help cultivate uh, ideas and and ideologies that are much closer, I think, to what we as human beings conceive ourselves to be and conceive our societies to be. The problem is that the economy has come to be considered, and not only by people who are in its elite uh, offices, but by citizens as well, 
because of the kind of information that they're fed through the media and whatnot. The economy has come to be considered this sort of a living, breathing uh, animal that constantly needs to be fed or it'll be bad for all of us. Um, it's been treated as an end in itself. Uh, I think we need to reimagine the economy as something that exists in order to serve the public interest, not as an end in itself, and something that has to be judged in accordance with how well it serves the public interest. And if you just take this very moment uh, right now, you know, 3.37 p.m. on December 30th, uh, and, and ask and look around the world and say, uh, are people being served by this economy? Or if you look before the so-called crash and ask, were people being served when the economy was supposed to be functioning fantastically? Uh, you know, everybody is, is doing well and making money. But look at the world and ask, is this institution, the economy, really serving humanity? Uh, the answer has to be no. So obviously, it's failing miserably, even when apparently it was doing very well. And so it's, it's that way of somehow um, viewing the economy as a separate thing that has its own life that I think is a large part of the problem, and I think that needs to be addressed. Um, more specifically than that, I, I think uh, Obama needs to be talking about a social bailout, and I think that that uh, is um, consistent with some of what you're talking about, forgiving debts, uh, stopping foreclosures, reinventing inner cities, creating infrastructure that serves humanity, trying to come up with local and ecologically sustainable ways of producing food, and so on and so forth. And one could go on and on, and there are many bright minds in the United States and around the world that uh, have have been thinking about these kinds of things and and writing about them and coming up with pragmatic uh, and doable kinds of of solutions uh, and I think there has to be a real reckoning with the fact that the course that we're on is not the right course it's not working and that we need to start looking at these kinds of alternative ideas but fundamentally whether we call it a social bailout or whether we call it uh, reimagining the economy or whether we call it a, uh, a social bill of rights, whatever we call it, um, what we need to do is reconnect our sense of what it means to be human, to what's important about being human, our, our love relationships, our social relationships, our friendships, and so on, to reconnect that to the institutions that govern us whether politically or economically, because the disconnect between those things is huge. I don't think that over history, the idea of what it means to be a person in the sort of various particular uh, interstices of, of life, the, 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 deep, the, the sort of day-to-day, work-a-day lives that people live, people want a home, they want security, they, they need good food, they want love, they want to love, they want community. I don't think these things have changed very much. They certainly haven't changed as much as the institutions that govern us have changed over history. These things haven't. What it means to be human is something that is, is quite fundamental. But somehow, as humans, we haven't managed to create institutions 
that govern us, that reflect those things and that nurture those things and that serve those things. And so, I mean, if I were sitting with Barack Obama, I guess I would say, you know, you've, you've got a, a real gift in terms of being able to communicate and inspire. And this is what you need to do. Um, you need to change the grammar, the language, the way that we think about governance and the way that we talk about governance as much as needing to change the actual mechanisms for doing it. I, I appreciate that insight. I would add something to what you just said that um, might make a difference. Why not start a list of the corporations, large or small, that do not look at just making a profit as their only motive, but rather create products or services in a working environment that is unique? and therefore give people who care about unique investments, an investment that's an ethical investment, uh, that is stable, uh, an opportunity to know that these things exist and to give them some reward. Because if we start rewarding ethics, if we acknowledge integrity, if we care about people who come to work each day and they're happy because they're treated well at work, there's no uh, separation in equality of the sexes. Now, men and women are paid equally for the same work. There's no discrimination. There's, no, there, there's a wonderful environment and that they're really looking at what is going to allow this company to be around for a long time. That is important. At the same time, if we encourage that, I know that there are an awful lot of Americans who are so fed up with everything in the existing system that they want options. So now's the perfect opportunity for real change. And I will give my support, and I've asked my audience to give their support to Obama until such time that he betrays that. If he does betray it, we will show what the portrayal is, and we will remind him of his promises. If, however, he does not betray us, if he does the right thing and starts to disengorge himself from all of the Clintonites who did betray us, they eviscerated the environment, they betrayed us on every one, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the ethics, morality were not there. They allowed, uh, they allowed uh, Rwanda to happen and did not intercede, actually prevented people from interceding that would have helped. In fact, up in Canada, the head of the U.N. mission there uh, it got terribly depressed because every time he wanted to stop the genocide, he was told not to. And Madeleine Albright, who was at the U.N. at that time, was part of that reason, as was the Clintons. So we need people who will want real change, but not just throwing money at Wall Street. And our current predicament oh, is we're throwing money in the wrong direction. It's not going to be constructive. I mean, with respect to corporations, the conclusion of my book is basically consistent with with what you said. I mean, we have to create um, both regulatory mechanisms and incentives. I mean, you mentioned tax incentives to effectively ensure that corporations um, do more good than harm. That seems fairly obvious. How to do that, I think, is... Uh, is, is a real challenge. And part of the challenge, a large part of the challenge, is that the very structure of the corporation, and this is what made me interested initially in writing my book and making the film, uh, is that the very structure of the corporation makes it difficult to ask it to do anything other than create wealth. Um, the idea of corporate social responsibility is a bit of an oxymoron because 
to the extent that the managers of corporations are actually socially responsible, if they say, for example, we're going to pursue social responsibility even though we know it's going to cost our shareholders, to the extent they do that, they act illegally. So the best that they can do, and I believe this is what, what I found in doing the research for the corporation and interviewing corporate heads, they themselves find this frustrating. The best they can do is say, we're going to serve some social or environmental purpose as a means to making money. It can never be an end in itself within the current kind of corporate structure. Now, the only exception to that is corporations that are not publicly traded, in other words, that are simply closely held or, or owned and run by the, by the same person. In that scenario, uh, an individual can, can do what he or she wants with his or her company. But once the company is publicly traded, the legal fiduciary duty to the shareholders kicks in, and it creates a very narrow frame for companies to act in socially responsible ways. Now, those laws can be changed. And that's an area where I would strongly encourage uh, this new administration to do some work. Uh, one other, one other thing. I, what do you believe we should do when it comes to getting regular people, school teachers, um, accountants, um, social workers, uh, police officers, firefighters? The people that make up the majority, about 88% of Americans, what are we going to do to get them to be able to be in a position to get elected to office since they don't have the special interest groups, the deep pockets? What can we do to help them so that we are better represented at that level? Mm -hmm. Well, again, it is a matter of, of legal structure. Um, the current laws that govern political institutions make it very easy and give many incentives um, to corporations to pour uh, lots of money into into the political system and uh, to have a great influence, whether it's through lobbying or it's through uh, election campaign financing. Um, now, you can change those laws. Uh, up here in Canada, where, where I live, uh, we did. Uh, we basically at the federal level banned corporate donations. And I think it makes a difference in terms of the type of person who can become uh, involved in politics. But it's not only elected office, it's the, it's the bureaucracy as well. It's the agencies, um, the administration, the, the people, the officials who are appointed. And there is this problem of a revolving door where, for example, in the Food and Drug Administration, you end up uh, with people who a week ago were the heads or top-level managers of pharmaceutical companies, and now they're supposed to be uh, governing the industry at arm's length. Well, it's, you know, it's unreasonable to expect that. They're not going to be affected by their previous alliances. So we really, I mean, there really needs to be uh, a serious reckoning with the idea that government is supposed to represent the people, not corporate interests. And the laws that govern the institution of government itself, uh, the campaign financing laws, the lobbying laws, those kinds of laws really have to be looked at closely um, to be more consistent with the ideal uh, that government is uh, for the people and by the people, not for corporations and by corporations. 
Well, I certainly appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights with us. They've been very much appreciated by me and I'm sure by people in this audience. If people would like to get your book or your documentary, how can they do that? Uh, you can go to www.thecorporation.com uh, and uh, get uh, both the book and the documentary, or um, the book is published by uh, the Free Press, Simon & Schuster, or any of the online uh, uh, retail outlets um, have both the book and the film. We need a spiritual awakening in corporate America. And uh, that would make a big difference. Thank you very much for your input, and we look forward to our next conversation with you. Thanks so much for having me on, Gary. Bye. Bye-bye.